I'd ask that you turn in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16. Starting with verse 1. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, How much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. As we studied Luke 15 last Sabbath, we see that Jesus gave covenant people three parables as he defended his controversial ministry that he had with publicans and with sinners. He gives the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In the parable of the lost son, the younger son decides that he wants to leave his family and enjoy himself. And apparently he does enjoy himself. But there comes a place in the parable where he's unable to have fun any longer. The time for pleasure is over because his relatively newfound wealth is all gone. And he's left nothing at home. And instead of a life filled with the pleasures that the world has to offer, his life has become a life of physical misery and spiritual pain 
In Luke 15, we see that he comes to himself. He's a changed man. You may have heard the expression that someone's so conceited that they strut while they're sitting down. Well, perhaps this young man has gone from being a young man who could strut while sitting down to a young man who hung his head even while standing up. He is now a man of regrets, a man who feels extremely foolish, and rightfully so. But he is also a changed man who wants to go home. And he does go home, just like the first two parables. And just like the first two parables that Jesus told, there is great rejoicing. There's great excitement. In this case, the father is overjoyed, and he commands that there be a party since his dead and lost son is now alive and he is found. And just like the first two parables, there is great rejoicing. But there's one person who is obviously not rejoicing. That being the older son. The older son who not only complains about the party, but in doing so, criticizes the actions of the father. At the beginning of the third parable of Jesus, it was obvious that the younger son had an attitude problem. At the end of the parable, we see that the older son, we see the older son as an angry, ungrateful, and self-righteous, grumbling man who despises a truly repentant and changed younger brother. The older son represents the religious leaders who are complaining and attacking Jesus and who are spiritually dead. But not only are they spiritually dead, but they're leading others in the direction of hell. The younger son represents rebellious members of the covenant who have been changed by the Holy Spirit and will be spending eternity in heaven their eternal home. And we're left with the question, will the older son repent? This older son who is part of the covenant, will he repent? In Luke 15, 31, we read, and he, the father, and he said unto him, son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Notice that the father still calls him son and says, all that I have is yours. Now, while parables do not have to have an exact one-to-one equivalence, it is obvious that the older son has something that is extremely valuable. He's a member of the covenant. He has so much. Will he waste the great riches of the covenant which he has been given? Will people like these religious leaders continue to waste it all? Or will they repent? At the end of the parable of the lost son, we are also left with two facts that escaped the ungodly religious leaders during the time of the ministry of Jesus. First, Jesus showed that he was the true shepherd by spending both quality and quantity time with the obviously spiritually dead members of the covenant. We can see this with the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Second, 
Jesus also showed that he was the good shepherd by spending quality and quantity time with these self-righteous religious leaders who, rep who are represented in these three parables as well. Religious leaders who had no need for repentance. Religious leaders who complained instead of rejoicing. Religious leaders who were headed for hell and as bad shepherds were leading others to hell as well. Religious leaders who did not have the same drive and determination for the kingdom of God that they had for their own private kingdoms. And that ties in with Luke chapter 16, where Jesus will continue to show the importance of being excited about the building up of the kingdom of God in a way in the way that the Heavenly Father is excited about the building up of the kingdom. In Luke 16, verse 1, we read, and he, said, and he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Jesus tells this story to his disciples about a rich man who employed a steward who was accused of squandering his possessions. Not his own possessions, but the possessions of the rich man. Unlike Luke 15, where Jesus seems to be directing what he says primarily to the grumbling Pharisees and scribes, Luke 16.1 specifically states that he's talking to his disciples. And the word disciple here probably indicates a group larger than his 12 disciples. But don't get the idea, however, that the complaining religious leaders are not at least within earshot. The word that is translated steward in Luke 16.1 is economon. Economon in Greek means manager of the house. It is the English word from which we get the, it is the Greek word from which we get the English word economy. Where do we see this in scripture? Well, one place we see this in Scripture, as far as the concept of it, we see a wonderful illustration of a good house manager, of a great house manager, in Proverbs 31, where the virtuous wife is described. She is a house manager. The position of house manager is a very important position, which, when performed well, can make the head of the home look, look great. Feel great, feel contented, but when not performed well, can make the head of the home look foolish and feel miserable. The text does not tell us specifically how rich the man was or in, which, in what ways he was rich, but I would figure that at least part of his riches involved a landed estate. 
Owners of these estates were known to hire a house manager or steward to take care of the business affairs of the estate. On an estate such as this, it was not unusual to have renters who would pay their rent by giving the owner a fixed amount of yearly produce. Notice that this house manager that we see described here in Luke 16, he's not accused of fraud, though this may be the case, but he's not accused of fraud. This steward or house manager is accused of wasting the rich man's goods. The word which can be translated wasted or squandering from the Greek here in Luke 16.1 is basically from the same word that we see in the lost son story where the younger son wasted his riches. The steward is questioned and apparently has, he's unable to defend himself. The steward is then fired and told to surrender the account books. Now, for some reason, the house manager does not seem to have to leave immediately. Verses 3 and 4. Luke 16. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Perhaps the manager has been given time to get his books in order. Our text does not say. Luke 16.3 does say that the steward has a talk with himself. Manual labor. No. Begging. No. I've got it. The steward was intelligent and was inwardly motivated, and he has come up with an idea. He combined his intelligence and a strong inner drive to come up with a retirement plan to enhance his future. Before IRAs and 401ks, this inwardly motivated house manager who had been fired came up with a plan that looks like a retirement plan. And if this plan is successful, people will welcome him into their houses, into their homes. Verses 5 through 7. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write for score. The steward lowers the debt of at least two people, but for all we know, 
It may have been 52 people or even more. I take it that Jesus is just giving us a small sample size of what the steward did. Under the theory of this retirement plan, people will be personally indebted to the steward, perhaps long-term hospitality or other help. And how will they ever be able to say no after what he has done for them? We do not see the steward telling anyone that he's been fired. But notice that he does tell one debtor to lower his debt, but not just lower his debt, but to do it quickly. Do the debtors recognize the dishonesty of the steward? These debtors may have thought that the manager had acted on their behalf and received permission to lower their debt obligations. And the do-it-quickly remark may have had the idea, at least in their minds, attached to it, that you better do this quickly before the owner changes his mind. From what I've studied, the reduction, this reduction of debt obligations in situations such as this was not unusual. Reducing account figures because of weather conditions, for example, affecting the crops, was a common occurrence for that time. How many people had their obligations lowered? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say, but the context of the story gives at least the impression that there are potentially enough to help make the steward's future, his future life, at least a relatively comfortable one. Now, what will the wealthy owner's reaction be? I picture at this time the debtors praising both the owner and the manager for their actions. Even if the owner was able to reverse what the house manager did, will it be in his own personal interest to do so? That brings us to verse 8. Verse 8 of Luke 16, we read, And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. First, seems like a pretty odd verse from what we know of other scripture. Let's look at the first part of verse 8. The wealthy man, the Lord, small l, commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Do you have, ever hear of anything even close to this? Do we have any examples in our society or time that might compare with this? How about politicians? Specifically, politicians who grant favors right before their term of office is over. Take that 10-year jail sentence and write, get out of jail free. Take that title of attorney and write, judge. 
The steward is being praised by the rich man for being shrewd, for being clever. As we see our, the notes in the bulletin, I mentioned number one, the steward was intelligent and was inwardly motivated. But secondly, I add that the steward combined his intelligence and a strong inner drive to come up with a retirement plan to enhance his future. Now the second part of verse 8 is potentially problematic. First may have sounded weird, the second one may seem even more, more strange or weirder. Listen to what, now this is Jesus speaking here. Listen to what Jesus has to say at the end. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. So is he saying this is the way we're supposed to live too? Take advantage of situations if we get them? Be shrewd? Is Jesus saying that we should be like this shrewd and clever manager? The steward? Scripture does, after all, teach us that we should be wise. No, Jesus is not saying that we should be like this dishonest and conniving man. Jesus is teaching us that in, the, in worldly matters, worldly people often show more astuteness, more shrewdness than the people of God do in matters affecting the kingdom of God. These unregenerate people show more shrewdness, more astuteness, more inner drive, more excitement for their individual kingdoms than what the children of light show for the kingdom of God. Don't raise your hands, please. How many of you have ever been involved in a multi level marketing company. Now, I am not here to knock or criticize MLMs. But I do know what a multi-level marketing company meeting can be like. Some of their meetings can make you think that you are attending a charismatic church service complete with testimonies, amens, and calls for decision. And the excitement is contagious, especially if they're selling good products. The question here at hand is not whether a member of a multi-level marketing group should be terrifically excited about a good product. That's not the question. The question is, are we as Christians just as excited if not more so, about the gospel and the kingdom of God as the people of this world are about their own personal good news and their own personal kingdoms. As Jesus shows us concerning worldly matters, people of this world often show more astuteness, more inner drive, and more excitement than the people of God do in matters affecting their Christian walk and the kingdom of God. I strongly believe that it's important 
for all of us to ask ourselves the question, what really excites me in life? What truly excites me? What do I really care about? What kingdom am I primarily working for? We all have things in our lives that mean a lot to us, but we must strive to seek first and foremost the kingdom of God. Verse 9. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Again, a very seemingly, at, on the surface, odd remark for Jesus to be saying, but in reality it is not. It fits the context extremely well. We must be seeking the true riches of the kingdom of God and doing what we must to acquire them with honesty and integrity. Instead of following the example of the world of shrewdly and astutely driving forward for riches that in the long run lead to ruin and despair, we should be seeking first for the kingdom of God. In our notes once again, the steward was intelligent and was inwardly motivated. The steward combined his intelligence and a strong inner drive to come up with a retirement plan to enhance his future. Now, number three, the Christian should combine intelligence and a strong inner drive in a godly way to build up the kingdom of Jesus Christ and, as a side benefit, enhance his or her future. I'll read that again. The Christian should combine intelligence and a strong inner drive in a godly way to build up the kingdom of Jesus Christ and, as a side benefit, enhance his or her future. At first glance, Luke 69 does, again, seem quite odd, but it's not. Let's look back to the three parables that Jesus gave in Luke 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son all represented members of the covenant who had been cast aside by religious leaders during the time of Jesus. When members of the covenant were changed by the Holy Spirit, there was excitement in heaven. And Jesus continues, despite the criticisms of people like the scribes and Pharisees, to do what it takes to gather the elect into the eternal kingdom even if it meant spending quantity and quality time with these obviously bad members of the covenant who were so often ignored by religious leaders in Israel. Verse 8 of Luke 16, along with its context, makes it very clear that, that we should do what it takes using biblical methods to work for the kingdom that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as well as the angels, are so excited about. And Luke 16, 9, shows us that we should manifest that excitement by using the mammon of unrighteousness for the kingdom that we are to be so excited about. 
Now, what is this mammon of unrighteousness? Money. Riches. Things of this world. Things that in and of themselves are not righteous. Things that can be used for either good or evil. Things that can be used by excited and motivated members of the kingdom of God to build up the kingdom of God. Again, the Christian should combine intelligence and a strong inner drive in a godly way to build up the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ and as a side benefit, enhance his or her future. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19, where Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Reading, getting back to Luke 16.9 once again. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Who is they? People who die and go to heaven, who you have positively influenced by your material possessions. Possessions that God has used to build up his kingdom. How we use our material possessions in this life and how we plan our estates while we are alive is so vitally important. What will we know in heaven? Will we get to find out who was touched by our giving? Will we get to find out how we were touched by the giving of others. The Bible does not really give a whole lot of details about this sort of thing. What we do know is that there will be Christians in heaven who will be received by other Christians whose lives have been touched by the positive use of their temporal earthly wealth. We do know that. Notice the contrast between the dishonest steward who plots and schemes so that he will be welcomed into earthly homes, which are temporal in nature, by people who do it out of a sense of obligation, and Christians who will be welcomed into everlasting habitations by people who truly love them. 
We should never want to be like the religious leaders during the time of Jesus who complained about how he built up the kingdom while being the best spiritual shepherd that this world has ever known. Instead of complaining, we are to be excited and a part of the action, doing what needs to be done while using the material blessings that God has given us to build up the kingdom of God so that others whose lives we have touched with these material possessions might receive us into eternal habitations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what you have given us in your word how you have taught us that it is our responsibility to use what you have given us for the building up of your kingdom. It is so tempting to time and time and time look at our own kingdoms and putting those kingdoms far above your kingdom, the kingdom of your son Jesus. We pray that more and more, that not only will we be changed by the Holy Spirit, but we would encourage others and others would encourage us to put the kingdom of your Son first and foremost. And as we look at our lives, may we recognize that the only way we can do this is through your Holy Spirit who changes us and as he changes us, giving us the responsibility, giving us the ability to become more and more like your son Jesus. And as we do that, recognizing our sin, we will confess our sins. And if we've been a bad example to other people in doing this, perhaps other people in the church, by putting ourselves first time and time again, that we will confess sins to others as well. And we see in Scripture that as we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if that be true, with a murderer, an adulterer like David, and a murderer and a persecutor of the faith like the Apostle Paul, shows us that we have that hope that even our sins be forgiven as well. May we put you first in all that we do in Jesus' name.